0: Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the editor in chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today, we're talking about health literacy. And maybe you think of health literacy as the building blocks of knowing how to access the healthcare system and knowing what to do when you have a cold. But that's not the bit of health literacy that we're talking about today. Today we're talking about our collective health literacy as clinicians, some of us as patients or athletes, some of us as parents or carers, our literacy of the particular health, well-being and performance needs of female athletes. With me today is Dr. Rachel Harris. She's represented Australia at the Olympics as a swimming athlete. And as a team clinician, she was the Chief Medical Officer for the Australian Paralympic Team in Tokyo 2021. Now she leads the Australian Institute of Sports' Female Athlete Performance and Health, Menstrual Cycle and Hormonal Contraception Project. Dr Rachel Harris, welcome to JOSPT Insights.
1: Thanks for having me, Claire. It's great to be here.
0: Rach, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast, and I really can't think of many people who are better placed than you to help us understand more about female athlete health, well-being and performance, and I deliberately talk about those three elements. So tell me, what do female athletes and their coaches, clinicians who work with them, parents, and others around them need to know about female athlete health. And maybe we can start with what they know, or perhaps maybe a better phrasing of that question is, how good is their knowledge of things like menstrual cycle, breast health, bra fitting, pelvic floor health?
1: Yeah, look, great question. And hopefully things are changing as these conversations are being normalised. But look, there's been some great research around knowledge and and particularly around the menstrual cycle. So a couple of great researchers out of Griffith University a couple of years back did a a survey on um, knowledge around menstrual cycle in elite athletes, and they asked just under 200 elite athletes. And the results of it were really absolutely horrifying. So, you know, there was only 14% of these women that could identify estrogen and progesterone as the key female hormones. So the knowledge base is really quite low and that that does feed in around athletes and coaches and people that support them as well. And it's not just around menstrual cycle, it's about all of those other things that you talked about too, such as pelvic floor function. Certainly things like the increased professionalization of sport for women has um, helped to bring this to the fore
0: there's plenty of people who are trying to raise awareness and and trying to do a lot of work around improving health literacy for all of us. And I think this is the point. It's not simply about raising the health literacy of the female athlete herself. It's the coaches, the parents, all of the entourage around the athletes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's so critical. You know, we absolutely want to upskill our athletes, but if the people around them don't understand what's happening in our athletes' bodies, then it's really difficult for those athletes to A, get things like empathy around particular considerations that might happen, but also to assist them and facilitate them to get the support that they need and to start normalising this as part of a very normal physiological process. And it feeds into even things such as puberty, you know, for our um, um, young girls that are transitioning through puberty and having body changes. And I think a really big piece around this normalisation of these conversations is that The transition of going from a girl to a woman is actually a really positive thing. You know, we can have huge performance improvements or we do have huge performance improvements between that transition from girls to women. And we really need to be embracing it. One of the things that really frustrates me so much is that if for young boys, their transition into manhood is celebrated. But for so many of our girls, transition into womanhood and development of, you know, body changes and menstrual cycles and things is really kind of a negative process but we really need to start to to switch that narrative
0: there's lots of elements to female athlete health and i'm going to zero in on one particular area today because we could spend a whole podcast on each of these topics. I'd like to talk about the menstrual cycle today and I'm particularly interested in how you as a, as a doctor explain the menstrual cycle to athletes. What are the key things that athletes, coaches, parents and others who are supporting athletes need to know and maybe even more important feel comfortable talking about?
1: The the basics are that the menstrual cycle is a monthly cyclical change of hormones that can impact our body in a variety of different ways. Its onset is at puberty. So when our ovaries start to produce estrogen and progesterone and our body starts to make these changes, we then have this kind of complex interaction that goes between our ovaries and our brain. So in particular, the pituitary gland, where hormones from up in the brain impact the hormones from your ovaries, the hormonals, changes in the ovaries, then impact stuff in the brain. So it's this big feedback mechanism. And at different points of that cycle, we have different changes. So if we're thinking about kind of the basics of the menstrual cycle, and I like to call it a little bit of a unicorn cycle because women are so incredibly individual that there's going to be some real individual changes between women. So the normal is really more of a unicorn cycle because there's very few people that actually have this. But if we start at day zero, that's the onset of your period. And that's the time where estrogen and progesterone from your ovaries are sitting really low. And we're also getting some hormones from your brain, which are luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, which are also really low. So they're kind of flatlined. And because they're all flatlined, we actually start to get release of the lining of your uterus. And so that should last between four and seven days, really. And after that time, we then start to get that interaction of the pituitary gland and the ovaries happening again, and we start to see some increase in hormones. So we start to see a rise in estrogen. We'll get an increase in luteinizing hormone um, and follicle-stimulating hormone, and they actually then switch on the development of a follicle within the ovaries to start maturing an egg. When we have a luteinizing hormone peak, we actually get a release of that egg and at that point, which sits at around day 14 of the cycle, we then start to get a drop off of those hormones. So luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormones start to drop off, estrogen drops off, and then we start to get a secondary peak. So we then start to build up our estrogen and progesterone. And really in that second phase of the cycle, it's the progesterone that's the bigger piece. It starts for us to, I guess, mature and thicken the lining of the uterus, so it will be I guess, hospitable for if that egg gets fertilized to start developing into an embryo. And that's really, again, coming back to that evolutionary sense. Now, if the egg doesn't get fertilized and it doesn't embed into the lining of the uterus, then you actually then get a drop off of those hormones again. So the estrogen and progesterone drop off, they start to flatline, and then again, we'll start to get back to day zero of that cycle and we release the lining of that uterus again. So on the whole, we start to see that cycle, which anywhere between 21 and 35 days is considered normal or unicorn, as I mentioned previously. We have a fertile window of around about seven days at about that mid cycle point. So when that egg is being released in the first half of the cycle, it's really that the primary driver is your estrogen. So that estrogen hormone is the one that you'll have more symptoms from. In the second half of the cycle, it's the progesterone that you'll have the primary driver of, of a lot of your symptoms that you've got going on. And when I say symptoms, I don't want to make that a negative thing. So, you know, one of the things that we need to talk about is that at certain parts of that cycle, it's not just symptoms that you might get, like headaches or bloating or cramps, but you can actually have really positive things as well. So some of us actually have, you know, points in our cycle where we can feel really strong or, you know, our endurance capacity seems to change or we just feel like we can take on the world. So those positive changes at different parts of that cycle are also something that we really need to understand
0: Now, I think there's been a bit of a stereotype or perhaps a perception that female athletes will perform at their best and equally have their worst performances at very specific points in the cycle. Is that true, Rach?
1: Look, we did this really cool bit of research just, well, when the Tokyo Olympics got delayed. We surveyed just on 200 Olympic and Paralympic athletes here in Australia, and we actually asked them, when in your cycle would you like to have your gold medal game, gold medal match? When would you like that to be in your cycle? And whilst there was a little bit of a trend for there to be athletes wanting it in the late luteal phase, there was also athletes that picked every single part of their cycle for their gold medal day. So I think this is the really important piece. whilst there might be some trends for some people, there are absolutely people that want to have that Olympic you know that Olympic or that world championship or the biggest event of their career. they want that at certain parts of that cycle we know that our athletes are performing and wanting to perform at every single part of that cycle. So we really need to be embracing that, right? Rather than saying, hey, you're only going to perform at this time of your cycle. Let's embrace that and start to understand ourselves and say, hey, we can do all of these things at every single part of our cycle.
0: And I guess that also underscores why the menstrual tracking is really helpful or could form a really helpful part of, of tracking your training program and working with your coach to then figure out as an athlete, how am I going to structure a program to suit my cycle and to suit what I want to do? Can we talk a bit about menstrual tracking? Because there are just a million apps out there that will track your cycle and promise to do a whole bunch of stuff. What's the most straightforward way to do this, Rach? And then how how does one use this information? There's a lot of promises, I think, that menstrual cycle tracking apps make. How many of those promises can they really deliver on?
1: If we go again back to basics, women have been tracking cycles as a way of you know, contraception for a really long time. So um, different things like that, have, people have been tracking this for ages, and it's just simply by pen and paper. But I guess with the advent of you know, technology, there's been uh, a real push, I suppose, for lots of these apps, and there are over 135 of them out there. <laughs> This is the big thing. Anyone can go out there and produce an app, but whether or not it's actually particularly beneficial, I think is something that we just have to keep at the back of our mind. So you could do menstrual cycle tracking by any means, pen and paper, putting it in your phone. You could use one of these apps. There's a lot of the, you know, you're, smartwatches and smartphones that you can embed it into the native system and all of that as well and keep an eye on it. There is a real mix of how you actually get fed back that information. So whether it's graphical or a lot of these apps actually send out things like notifications about what you should be eating and what you should be doing at different times of your cycle as well. What we really need to remember, though, is that we need to be taking all of these things with a little bit of a grain of salt. Ultimately, we don't have a lot of information or good high quality research about how the menstrual cycle impacts things like nutrition and change in training for a population base. And essentially, that's what a lot of these apps are doing. They're saying, hey, you're on day 14 of your cycle, you know, go and do weights. But, you know, I might actually feel really terrible on day 14 of my cycle as an individual. So what we need to remember is that a lot of these apps are actually giving out that population-based information, which is not necessarily based in high-quality research. What happens to me is different to what happens to you. So again, that individualization of all of this, I might feel great on day 14, you might feel absolutely horrible, so probably we're not going to be doing exactly the same thing if we're doing a training program. So if we can understand that at a certain part of our cycle, I'm going to have you know two kilos of weight gain fluid retention and that happens to me every single month rather than me feeling down about myself and saying oh I've put on weight and doing all of these things I can actually go oh hang on that's the hormonal change it happens on every single time at whatever we'll pick day 27 of my cycle so if that happens on day 27 and I know that happens on day 27 of my cycle it can really change the way that we think about it. The same goes for things such as you know, if you are feeling strong at different parts of your cycle, and you notice a pattern that this happens the week leading up to my period, I feel fantastic, I feel strong, I want to do more weights. You know, you might be able to embrace that and and do a little bit more in that space. Knowing what happens to you is really important, and I think we need to emphasise that more because there is so much individual variation. So. For you to understand that, you need to be tracking your cycle or or making note of what happens in your cycle for at least three months. I think the other thing that's super important about that menstrual cycle tracking is that you can start to notice if your normal changes. And that's a really key piece because we know that menstrual cycle disturbance or even things such as low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport for women it can very often show up as menstrual cycle changes for the very first time so understanding a pattern change like that is super important menstrual cycle dysfunction so things such as you know endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome each of those conditions impact around about 1 in 9 women in their lifetime So starting to understand that kind of information can also be super helpful, particularly if you're needing to go and seek out medical attention. So, you know, tracking that kind of symptomatology or how it impacts your life. You know, if you can't go to work, school, training, competition at certain parts of your cycle because of significant heavy bleeding or significant pain, that's really important information. There are 50% of our population at some time in most of our developed countries, so not necessarily some of the developing countries, but at least 50% of women are usually on some form of hormonal contraception for, for some reason. So menstrual cycle tracking is less useful for those people because all we're really understanding then is, you know, what that hormonal contraception is doing. It's less so about what their cycle is doing. But there are some women that find it really helpful to, I guess, track symptoms or track the effects of what that hormonal contraception is doing. There are absolutely some women that still feel cyclical breast changes or feel ovulation pain, still feel cramping when they're on some types of hormonal contraception. I think another thing that has certainly become you know, more relevant also in the last probably, you know, two years is around privacy of all of these apps as well. So, there's really sensitive and private information in a lot of these that could have a lot of really significant consequences. And we just need to be mindful of if you're putting this information into an app, where is it going? So, just being mindful of your privacy. Unfortunately, there is there was a great study that came out last year looking at how many of the fertility apps actually shared information to third party. When I say great study, horrifying study, but you know it was great to highlight all of these things. And there was you know something like eighty five percent of these top twenty fertility apps on on smartphones were actually giving their information to third parties. That privacy concern, I think for me, or that privacy understanding is a really important piece for all of that a lot of these apps actually have the potential to share with other members of your uh, of your sporting team and we need to be thinking about well is it necessary for every single role holder within my sporting team to get this private information about my cycle and we need to just be giving making sure that this is primarily about the athlete and about their personal health information. And if they want to share that, that is for them to decide. And it should always be an explicit sharing of this information, not just an implied sharing of this information.
0: And I think tying all of this back to health literacy, this is really an important piece of it, I think, that people do take this information very seriously. So we as clinicians have a responsibility to the athlete's for whom we're caring to know what is trustworthy information and help guide athletes and and coaches and parents and others around them to that trustworthy information and help steer them in the right direction. So it's on us as well to make sure that we understand all of the, the changes that occur across the menstrual cycle as well
1: absolutely and it is a bit of a minefield right so the um you know the the quality of data that's out there is actually relatively low unfortunately at the present time and i think again if we've got 50% of our population that are on hormonal contraceptives we also need to remember that there's so many different types of those that are out there and there's been really no studies done in that group and it's such a heterogeneous group as well so there's so many different types of oral contraceptive pill or Implants, which is the rod that you put in your arm, um, hormonal rod that you put in your arm, or IUDs, and they haven't really studied the effects of all of those different types of hormonal contraception and how they interplay with, you know, performance and and nutrition amongst other things as well.
0: Now, talking about contraception, how would you advise a female athlete and her coach, parents, if they're coming to you asking about using hormonal contraception to control, quote unquote? period around a major competition or to have a, an impact on performance?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think this is such an important question. And, and as a clinician, I get you know young women and their parents coming into me all the time and saying, hey, my daughter's becoming an elite athlete. We need to go on to hormonal contraception. So I kind of peel this back. And I like to start this again, like a, a little bit of an education session as well about how important the menstrual cycle is and the understanding of the menstrual cycle is for athletes. And again, understanding that subtle changes in our menstrual cycle might actually be you know, a very early sign of something like low energy availability or relative energy deficiency in sport. Understanding that ne- the natural cycle is actually a really important marker of underlying overall health and understanding that is a really key piece. I also then like to iterate that we have athletes that are performing at every single stage of their cycle out there on the world stage and that, you know, naturally cycling is actually a great thing to be doing. In fact, we can harness a bit more of the, I guess, those hormonal superpowers at different parts of our cycle when you're naturally cycling. I think then we need to understand why the athlete's going on to hormonal contraception, and I really do want to validate that there are women out there that really have a lot of difficulty with their menstrual cycle and that, you know, conditions such as endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome impact women greatly. The other piece is around, well, contraception was you know made for contraception purposes so there's absolutely people out there that are using it for that purpose and then the other one is really around timing and control and I think understanding the why of that you know why are we wanting to control that is it because you're so impacted by menstrual symptoms at certain times of your cycle that if you were to compete around those days it's really going to be a problem the other thing that I think is really important is, well, what is the potential implications of going on to these hormonal contraceptions? You know, we had a great story of a Paralympic athlete prior to Tokyo, who her story is actually out there in the press, so she won't mind me talking about it. But she has a medical condition where thermoregulation or maintaining her body temperature is really challenging for her just in her normal status quo. And she was having some menstrual dysfunction. So she was talking about potentially going on to a type of hormonal contraception. Now we knew that the Tokyo Paralympics was a really hot game. So it was held at, you know, a really hot time of the year. She already has difficulty in managing her own body temperature. And then she was talking about wanting to go onto a type of pill. And we know that certain types of pills can actually raise your baseline body temperature around about half a degree. So for her to go on to that type of hormonal contraception would have been a real disaster because It can mean that she, you know, has even more difficulty in terms of regulating her own body temperature, potential complications of things like heat stroke or, you know, heat illness at the games and have a performance disadvantage. We've got to remember that some of these things, whilst they seem really innate and benign, that they can potentially have quite significant consequences. And it's not just on health, but it's also on that performance piece as well. The other consideration around different types of hormonal contraception is, well, what is their washout period? Essentially, by taking different types of hormonal contraception and and more precisely, things like oral contraceptive pill or injections, there's another injection called Depo-Provera, which basically flatlines all your hormones, they can actually take a significant amount of time to wash out of your body and then return to your baseline fertility levels. Whereas things like an IUD, the intrauterine device that gets inserted into the uterus, when that comes out, your your baseline fertility levels usually return fairly instantaneously. There's so many different factors. I can't say when an athlete comes into the rooms, this is what we're going to do every time.
0: This is part of why. Having these chats and talking with athletes, and as you, as you talked about at the start, making this conversation normal is so critical, even around things like understanding fertility, the impacts on fertility. It sounds like it's very much an ongoing conversation. We need a whole lot more research, and it's very much that shared decision-making approach where you, as the clinician, need to, to share information with the athlete to help her make an informed decision and the the decision that's gonna that's going to be best for her.
1: I think it's just so important that we give that knowledge and help people to understand or go away and learn more about it so that they can make a fully informed decision.
0: Rach, as we wrap up, knowing what you know now about female athlete health and performance, what would have made the biggest difference for you as an elite athlete? And some of the folks listening to the podcast will know that you've performed at Olympics and Commonwealth Games for Australia. What do you think would have made the biggest difference for you as an athlete?
1: So I competed, you know, around 2000. None of these conversations were having been had around pool deck. I I never once had a conversation around, you know, what's your menstrual cycle doing or, you know, why are you on hormonal contraception? From my personal journey, I did go on to um, hormonal contraception relatively early in the piece for some menstrual dysfunction. And it wasn't really that bad. When I think back on it, um, it was probably more around the control. And I think ultimately, if I had have known that embracing your natural cycle and, and you know, monitoring it and understanding when things happen, I probably would have coped with that really well. I wish more of this was talked about. You know, so many of us just went on to the pill, I think, almost for the sake of it, because we were an elite athlete. There was zero conversations around, you know, pelvic floor health or anything like that, or bra fit. There was no conversations around fertility. And I'm not blaming the practitioners or anything back then it was just a very different time and I wish I had have been involved in you know time now where it is starting we are starting to normalize these conversations and we're talking about it and we're talking openly about it and certainly the impacts of you know hormonal contraception and what they can have and and you know the impacts of menstrual cycle dysfunction and I think really you know, using your menstrual cycle as a vital sign. I wish we had have done more about that. So understanding if it does change, that it might be a, you know an indicator of underlying health. Normalising the fact that menstrual cycle dysfunction is not all in your mind. It is something that absolutely impacts. I know that there's certainly a lot of women that I competed with that have had difficulty in terms of fertility, and it's not just in swimming, but in a whole bunch of other areas and other sports that fertility has been an issue down the track. And I wonder if we had have had more insight and knowledge and normalization of these conversations 25 years ago, they would have had to go through those same journeys.
0: And we're seeing things change. Wimbledon have changed the rules for female tennis players. There are, there are many examples that we can all point to now of changes that are happening. Conversations around female athlete health are happening in public, in all sorts of environments, and you're leading a lot of those conversations, Rach. So I'm so grateful for you doing that, you and your colleagues, and, and thank you so much for joining me on JOSPT Insights.
1: Thanks for having me, Claire, and thanks so much for having this conversation as well.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher,